0: Philippians chapter 4 we are drawing to a close in our series in Philippians it will take us through the rest of the summer and we will do um, in September a short series on uh, the gospel for real life talk about how the gospel has tremendous relevance to real life. And we'll be looking at real life issues such as relationships, family, work, things like that. Um, And then uh, that'll take us through a little bit of the fall. Then after that, I believe we're going to be in the Old Testament for a little bit. so on. It's wonderful to, to be uh, a people and wonderful to speak to a people that love God's Word. It's wonderful to have God's Word to guide us, and His Word is living and active. He's a God who speaks. He's here with us as we meet in His name, and He speaks to us through His Word. So in many ways, our time, our corporate worship time together, uh, the highlight is, is to be before His Word together. Uh, And to hear from Him through His Word. So the preaching of God's Word is not about a guy getting up and giving a good message. Though certainly that's a desire that I have and I think we should have. But that's not what it's about. It's ultimately about encountering God through His Word. And God can use people of all different gifting, uh, of all different ability in teaching and preaching His Word to speak. And it's important for us to have that orientation, to recognize that our time... Uh, Together, when we hear the word, is worship. It's engaging God. And my prayer as I bring his word, and my desire as a pastor, and really my desire for all of our pastors and teachers here, would be that we so serve in bringing God's word that you forget about us, and you hear God, and engage with God. And today, that is my prayer and desire for our time, that we would hear from God. We're going to look at just one verse, verse 1 of chapter 4. And this is a transition verse in this letter, and what I mean by that is Paul is moving from one topic or sort of instruction to another. He's getting ready to close out his letter, and he's going to be addressing, as he often does, some specific situations of kind of greetings, things like that. And so he's moving from the, the body of the deep truths that he's spoken about to get into some of these closing topics and closing sentences and uh, greetings to people. So it's just one verse. It's a tran- transition verse. But that's not the only reason why I chose just to speak on one verse. Usually we'll look at whole paragraphs. Not just because it's a transition verse, but it also is a very poignant and instructive verse for us. It is a short statement, and there are many short statements in life that that are poignant, that are short and sweet, so to speak. There are things that are short but are so important to listen to, statements that we make, statements from like uh, words from a spouse, like, I love you, words from a dad, like, well done, son, or mom, I'm so proud of you. These are all short statements, but they're just full of meaning. And that's what this verse is like. This is a short statement from Paul to his dear friends in Philippi. And there's just so much in what he says. I think it's worthy of one whole message just for one verse. And ultimately, as we listen to this short and sweet statement from Paul, we want to hear from God. So let's pray and ask that he would speak to us through his word. Lord, we thank you. For this verse, and all that's in it, that it is your word, and your word is alive, it's living and active, and you speak to us, and, and not only did you speak to the Philippians some 2,000 or so years ago, but Lord, you speak to us again and again, and you want to speak, and you will speak to us today. Lord, in your sovereign wisdom, you have designed that today, we would hear from this verse, And Lord, we want to hear from you. I thank you, Lord, for all your provision for this, for your grace, for your forgiveness. Lord, I'm a sinner who is unable uh, to serve you well, but thank you for your grace, for forgiveness and life. Thank you for your work and your people. You are gracious, and you love to speak to us. So Lord, we say speak for your servants are listening. We want to hear from you. We want to love you more and be changed by you as we engage with your word. Come, Holy Spirit, fill this preaching of your word. Speak to us. Be glorified in our lives, we pray. Amen. Amen. Philippians 4, verse 1, this transition verse, this short and sweet verse. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for. My joy. And crown. Stand firm, thus, in the Lord, my beloved. Philippians four, verse one. The title of the message is "Hear the Shepherd's Call," and really, this verse is is the heart cry and call of a shepherd leader. Paul, who is a shepherd leader, it is his his heart cry and call to the Philippians. It's a picture of who he was and, and what he felt. And what we see in this is that Paul very, very much loved these people. He dearly, dearly loved them, and he dearly, dearly wants the very best for them. When you love somebody, When you love somebody, you want the best for them. When you love them like Paul does, and we see through his words here, his deep love for them, you want the very best for them. And Paul wanted the very best for them. The very best for them is that they would stand firm in the Lord. That is what he was after. That is his heart, the shepherd's heart. That is the shepherd's call. He is a man who loved them, and love wants the very best for others. Love wants others to stand firm in Christ. So we're going to dig into this and learn this lesson, that love wants others to stand firm in Christ. We're going to look at the shepherd's heart, which is Christian love. We're going to look at the shepherd's call, which is to stand firm in Christ. We're going to learn about Paul, but not just that. We're going to learn about what leaders are called to, We're going to learn about what really all Christians are called to as we follow Paul's example. So let's dig in, looking at those two topics, a shepherd's heart and a shepherd's call. First, a shepherd's heart, Christian love. Paul, in addressing the Philippians, uses five descriptions of them, five nouns really, to speak of them. Five things in this one short sentence. These words are full of affection for the Philippians. He calls them brothers. He says, I, uh, I, whom I love, or beloved. He says, uh, they are longed for. The, he calls them my joy and crown. And then at the end again, calls them beloved. Five different terms for the Philippians that communicate his love for them. The first is brothers. He calls them brothers. Therefore, my brothers. This is a a word that we use, what we call people in our family. It communicates a familial relationship. It's more than just a friend. It's more than just someone you know. It's someone who you feel connected to as if they were in your family. And we know that in Christ, when we put our faith in Him, we are forgiven. We receive His we are imputed with his righteousness. We are made members of the family of God. We are sons and daughters. And by the way, this word brothers is an inclusive term. Uh, in the ancient world, it was, they didn't have a word that captured brothers and sisters, but that's the intent. It's kind of like how we would say maybe to a group of friends, if, you, if you're talking to a group of friends, it's um, men and women, you, you would say as, as New Englanders, you guys, hey, hey, you guys, let's go to the beach today. By the way, that's a great idea, good beach day. Yeah. Hey, you guys. We say you guys. It's a little awkward, you know, because it's, we use that with women too. And, but, I mean, what's the alternative? Like, hey, guys and gals. So that just doesn't fly, at least in the, this uh, century. Uh, so, so we say, hi hey, you guys. That's the idea here. Paul is saying brothers. He, he, it's an inclusive thing. He means brothers and sisters, the, the family of God at Philippi. It communicates his heart, how he feels about them. He sees them as brothers and sisters. He loves them as brothers and sisters. But then he goes on to say, Whom I love. I like how the King James translates it. Just beloved. Simply beloved. It's one word in the original language and it's, I think, best translated. Beloved. Beloved. This isn't just a nice term of endearment, like dear sir. This is beloved. I love you guys. Now, the five descriptors here all add to this effect that they would know and the whole letter and their experience with Paul would, would all back up this reality that this man loved these people. He loved them dearly. To love someone is to so wrap up your life in them that their true happiness is your true happiness. That, that you find your true happiness in their happiness. You, you are after They're good. That's the cause of your life. When you love somebody, you want their good. You have knit them, knit with them in such a way, in a sense, they've become a part of you. So that their joys are your joys, their sorrows are your sorrows. These people in Philippi are Paul's beloved. He loves them. And he's communicating this highest level of commitment to their life. This is how he feels towards these. Philippians. Now, these things, by the way, are, are all what Paul felt to the Philippians. But Paul has just said before this, and you heard a message from Sean the other week, he's calling us to imitate him. He's calling us to imitate his life, to imitate him, and not just the truths that he was committed to. And certainly that's the core, that's the ground, that's the foundation of it all. But to but to imitate him and how he lived to imitate him and how he felt toward others. So when Paul says these five things, the Scripture is calling us, God is calling us to so be impacted by the love of Christ, to be so impacted by the good news of Christ, that like Paul, as Paul was impacted, we too would be impacted and filled with the love of Christ and to have this same love for one another. To have the same shepherd's heart, whether we are a shepherd leader or a brother or sister who's not in leadership position. Regardless, we are called to imitate this sort of love. Paul calls them brothers. He calls them beloved. And he calls them longed for. In the original language, it's it's one word. We don't have a, I don't think we have a translation. I look for one word that would capture this. What he means is that you are ones I yearn for. I long for you. I desire to be with you. That's the idea here. He longs for them. He has a deep yearning to be with them. That's the natural result when you love someone, when Christ knits your heart with someone. It becomes intertwined with their hearts. And so you desire to be with them and to be separated from them is to experience longing. Just to be with them again. I can't wait for the next time. You know, I I thought about this, and and, and I realized that probably for all of us, this is our experience. We have friends. I have friends. uh, Imagine you have friends where we experience this same sense of longing. There are friends that we have that we can't be with right now for whatever reason. It might just be geographical separation. We may have friends that have gone on to be with the Lord, but we can't be with them because of that. And I know for me, I, as I think about Paul's heart for the Philippians, I, I reflect on all the friends, all the, the loved ones that I have that I long to be with, but I can't. To be a Christian, over, for me, over 30 years, to be someone made in God's image for almost 48 years is to mean that there's been many, many close friendships that I've developed, many, many people that I've knit my heart with over the years. And, and maybe in your mind you're thinking of these people. I just see all these faces and I can tell you story after story of friendships. Of having your heart knit to somebody. And that's appropriate. But also the bittersweet emotion of being separated from them. I I've thought of one brother, one friend uh, in Maryland. We used to live in Maryland. We're from here. But when uh, this was a brother that we walked through thick and thin together, ups and downs of life. We shared the joy of having children together and the sorrow of watching parents and others go on, pass on. We went through ups and downs together. And I can remember saying as, as we, as the gospel mission beckoned us back to New England, just saying to him, I, I had hoped that we could grow old together. But we're unable to do that because the, the gospel, the call of the gospel, beckoned us. And really for us as believers, the, God has that prerogative in our lives. He, he's the one who determines the time. He's the one who beckons us in his time. And we have to give up friends and homes and family for the sake of the kingdom at times. And so we experience this bittersweet emotion of longing for people. To follow Christ is to love one another deeply. To feel your heart knit together Together And then to experience, and at times to experience, the tearing that occurs when we are called to be away from each other. Our hearts ache. But for me, and I imagine for you, it just makes me look forward to that reunion all the more. There will be a day when there will be no more parting. We'll be together with the Lord and and, in his presence together with one another. No more sorrow there. And it's worth it for the meantime, for the sake of the gospel, to say goodbye for a time. To labor where he calls us to and to follow him. He's faithful. And that gives me strength. If I didn't have that, it would be very hard. But I know I can say goodbye because there will be a reunion in Christ. I think we all experience that. We have that heart. That's the heart of God in us. That's the heart of love. That's the reality when we knit ourselves one with another we feel these things, and it can be hard to be a part. That's how Paul felt. And he's communicating to his dear friends. You, I love you guys. You're my brothers. I long to be with you. And then he goes on to say that they are his joy and crown. Those are powerful descriptions of his love and care for them. Joy and crown. It's actually a really important concept to understand from God's Word, from Paul's life. This idea of others being his joy and crown. Now, crown there is the, the word that is of, often used in, in uh, ancient Greece for the crown that they wore uh, in the Olympics when they were victors, that very simple olive leaf crown. Uh, have you ever seen a picture of somebody, a, a champion athlete wearing that? I think at times they still practice that in the Olympics. And the picture is of this crown that's the crown of honor and glory. It's, it's really a it, it's just simple crown. It's just oak, um, olive leaves, right? It's just very simple. But what it represents, it, it represents the honor of that athlete. The, the athlete who is the champion wears that crown. And that crown is a picture of all the glory of that athlete. It's it, all the honor for that athlete. It is, it is the prize at the end of the race. It is that athlete's glory, And that's what Paul has in mind. He actually talks about this elsewhere in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. He speaks of the Thessalonians and says the same thing. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So watch what Paul does here. He says, For what is our hope? And So what he means is our hope, what we're looking forward to, or joy, there's the word joy again, or crown of boasting, he calls it. What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming, so upon the Lord's return? What, will, what is our crown of boasting? What is that reward that we're going to receive? He says, is it not you, Thessalonians? For you are our glory and joy. So now he changes out the word crown for glory. What's the idea here? He is saying that they are his glory. They are his boast. They are his ultimate reward and satisfaction at the end of the race. People. The Thessalonians. And in the case of this letter, the Philippians. They are Paul's crown. They are his joy. They are his joy currently, but they are ultimately his fullness of joy at the end when the Lord returns people. That's important to understand for Paul. It's it's an important aspect of how he lived, and it's an instructive truth for us as well as believers and as leaders. Paul was not living as a Christian merely to hear Christ say, well done. Those words Pretty much the best words you can hear. Well done, good and faithful servant at the end of the race. He wasn't living just for that though. He was living for that certainly, but not just for that. He wasn't merely living to be in the presence of Christ as as unbelievable as that is. As wonderful as that is. To be in the glorious presence of Christ in all His glory. To be in the glorious presence of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It wasn't just that. For Paul, his reward, what he wanted was to have his friends with him there as well on that day. So when he thought about his crown, it included people. To be there before the Lord and to see, see that there were people with him. That his friends, his brothers, his beloved, the ones he longed for were there with him as well on that final day. That is his joy. That is his crown. That's what he lived for. He wanted to make sure that they were so that they were living in Christ, they had trusted Christ, and they were walking with Christ, they remained in Christ, so that on the day they would be there. He gave his life to this, he says in Colossians. Speaking of Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is Paul's life goal as a leader, shepherd leader, He wants to labor hard to present everyone mature in Christ. And that's not just mature now, but mature ultimately for the final day. That on that day, he will have throngs of people there who have been rescued from their sin and have a legacy of fruitful life that comes from depending on Christ that are there with him. that's what he looks forward to. That's what he lives for. To see them with him, enjoying the glory of our triune God together forever. That's Paul's joy and crown. And it's important in this to understand something about how Paul understood the Christian life. It's instructive for us. The Christian life is not just about your first point of putting your faith in Christ and being forgiven for your sins and counted righteous and ready for heaven not just about that first point as important as that is but it's also about standing firm throughout your life in christ so it's about coming to faith in christ and that is also important that that moment of faith is oh so important to put your faith in christ and if if you are here with us and you've not yet put your faith in christ we're glad you're here again it I believe this is a good and safe place to consider Christ, to find folks that are patient and open to questions and who will be your friend in the journey. But we want to offer to you, we want to make known to you this amazing offer in Scripture, this amazing offer that Paul took advantage of and these Philippians took advantage of as well, this amazing offer to, in Christ, receive complete forgiveness and complete reconciliation with with God. And to receive this amazing offer, it's very simple. All you need to do is turn. Turn from running from God. Turn from running your own life. Turn from doing it your way. Turn from what the Bible calls sin. To recognize that sin. To recognize that it's wrong. To recognize it's an offense against God. To turn from it. To recognize that it has broken your relationship with God and with others. So to to turn from all that. And to put your trust in Christ. To put your trust in Christ because the good news of Christ, the gospel of Christ, is that Christ has come. He has lived a righteous life in every way. He not only, in his righteous life, did not do the things that you're not supposed to do. He didn't just keep from sinning, but he did the righteous things that we are called to do. So his righteous life was the fullness of not doing the wrong and doing the right. It wasn't just, I didn't do any wrong, therefore I had a righteous life. It's, I did all the right things. He fulfilled all righteousness. This righteous life Christ lived, he then offered up on the cross. He took that righteous life, that glorious life, that that life that was worthy of heaven. He was worthy in, in every way. And he offered up that worth on the cross as a sacrifice to his father he offered up that life to pay for your sins should you trust in him he took upon himself the just penalty for sin for for God in his goodness and justice requires a penalty for sin he cannot just sweep it under the rug it is cosmic treason and rebellion he must deal with it He's just. He's good. He's holy. And so there is a penalty that has to be paid. That penalty is paid one way or the other. It's called death. Not just physical death, but something much worse. Spiritual death. To be cut off from God forever. Scripture describes it with words like fire and darkness and torment. That perhaps doesn't even capture what it means to be cut off from the presence of God. You live life right now if you're not a believer in much goodness from God. His goodness is all around us. Yes, there's hardship in life. This world is broken by sin, but there's so much goodness. But there will be a day when God will bring judgment. And if we have not fled to Christ for mercy, we will find ourselves cut off from Him forever. And there's no remedy at that point. And so this offer is extended to you and extended to all people to put your faith in Christ who died to bear your sins and, and offer that righteous life so that the, the justice of God for sin can be satisfied and the justice of God that says there must be a righteous one, there must be righteousness, can be fulfilled in Christ as well. And all you need to do is simply turn and trust. Those two words capture it. Turn and trust. You can express that simple turning and trusting with a prayer. A prayer like this that says... Jesus, forgive me for my sin. I'm sorry. I receive your death for my sins and the life you offer. Now take your rightful place as my King and Savior. Thank you. Very simple prayer. And I would love to pray that with you. If you, if you prayed that, if that's in your heart, I'd love to talk to you about that. And that, that transaction with the Lord is really the most important transaction in, in life. But we need to understand it just doesn't end there. It's not just the end at that point. As important as that is, that's a beginning. And to belong to the Lord means to stand firm in Christ throughout life. For a believer, you need to not only believe on Christ and receive forgiveness in life, but you need to keep on living in Christ. You need to keep on returning to the power of the Gospel. The good news of Christ is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers. And if you separate the gospel from believers, you are in danger of finding yourself no longer standing firm in Christ because you have neglected the very power of God for the fullness of your salvation. Salvation is not complete until you are with the Lord on that day. And there's a phrase out there that I think is an unhelpful phrase that Christians sometimes say is once saved, always saved. It's really not a biblical idea. Now, I believe it holds truth to it, in it. There's truth in that phrase, once saved, always saved. But it's an abuse of Scripture. Really, if we were to say it more carefully, it's this, truly saved, truly endures. Truly saved, truly endures. That the true believer is not just simply once saved, I'm done. I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, and now I'll go do whatever. It doesn't work that way. If you are truly saved, you will endure. You will continue to stand firm in Christ. So Paul, when he relates to the Philippians, his heart's desire is to not only bring them the gospel to see conversion happen, but to see that conversion confirmed through a life of standing firm. And to see the the means of grace for that that Preservation to come through His life and His example. And so His orientation towards them and His deep love for these Philippians is is not only that they would come to Christ, but they would stand firm in Christ throughout their lives because Christ says, He who endures to the end will be saved. The one who doesn't endure will not be saved because truly saved, truly endured. Truly endured, truly saved. So Paul labored for this. He understood the importance of his life and his ministry in their their lives. To bring the gospel and to teach them how to stand. That's why he goes on, stand thus in the Lord. I love you guys, is what he's saying. I love you so much. Therefore, stand thus in the Lord. This is how you stand. You must keep on standing. You must remain in the Lord standing until the end. He did that out of his great love for these people. He loved the Philippians. I, I think of Paul, uh, he's the sort of guy, I think, as he talked about the Philippians, if he were around today and you said, hey, Paul, tell me about the Philippians, he'd be like one of those parents, have you ever had this conversation with somebody, and you've got like five or ten minutes, and you're just meeting them, and you say, hey, tell me about your kids. And 20 minutes later, they're still telling you about their kids, and they're, they got the pictures out, well, you know, however they show that in their phone nowadays and and they've told you about their kids and all the honors they've received and and they're going to harvard and and uh and you know what a great athlete they are and all those things that are that are come from a heart of a mom or dad who love their kids and i have patience certainly for that it's right that parents would be proud of their children that's how paul feels about the philippians i love you guys you're beloved i long for you and this drives him to want the very best for them How about you? What is your heart for those around you? What is your heart for other believers? Do you love them this way? This is the standard Paul brings to us in his example. To love one another with this sort of affection, this sort of love, and this sort of intention that they stand firm to the end. That love only comes from Christ Himself. And we must ground ourselves in the grace of God in the gospel and in a relationship with the Lord to have the power to love one another. But that's what we're called to, to love one another that deeply, that we are concerned that they stand with us on the final day, that they are there with us, that they are our crown and our, our joy. We're called to this for one another. And leaders, potential leaders, is this your heart for people? Why are you pursuing? Why are you in leadership? This heart needs to be at the core of what you're after. I want to see people with me. I want them to know Christ. I want them to know the love of Christ and the life in Him now, but I want them on that final day to be there with me. And I want to see them not there by the skin of their teeth but with a life legacy of fruitfulness because they depended on Christ day by day with us. And they loved one another in His name. And they served one another in the truth of the Gospel. That's what it means to love people in Christ. That was Paul's heart. That's what we're called to as God's people, leaders. That's what you are called to. That is to be your thought towards the people that you lead. is it? Is it? Is it a primary thought or one that's far down the list among other thoughts like getting them to do the things I want them to do having a successful ministry and perhaps by other standards from Scripture this is to be at the top of our list and our desire as we lead people as Christians in our relationships one for another it was Paul's heart it is Christ's heart it is to be our heart next and more briefly the shepherd's call to stand firm in Christ follows from what we've been talking about because if you love someone truly, you want the best for them. And the best is that they would stand firm thus in Christ. Paul wants them to stand firm. And, and we see this heart here. We see it elsewhere. There's a verse in 1 Thessalonians again where Paul says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Listen to those words. For now we live. If you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul loved them so much. and he, In this letter, he was so concerned about their spiritual state that once he heard news that they continued to stand, he said, now I live. Now I, now I can live. Now I can be happy. Because you are standing firm in the Lord. Paul wanted them to stand firm in the Lord. And it's so important for us to understand that term, in the Lord. Now, there's a call here in Scripture. And there's a call throughout Scripture to respond to God. Scripture never pulls punches on the clear call of our responsibility before God. We are to see to it that we stand firm. We are to be responsive to God's grace, responsive to Him. We have a call, we have a responsibility to stand firm. Human responsibility is never denied in Scripture, and we must not diminish that. But there are these two ideas out there in, in Scripture. There's human responsibility, there's divine sovereignty or sovereign grace. Sovereign grace is a topic I can't cover in just a couple of minutes. But sovereign grace is the reality that behind any good thing is God and His total sovereignty. He determines all things in His wisdom and in His prerogative. And He's gracious. And He pours out His grace on His people. And if God had not acted, if God had not worked, it doesn't happen. So sovereign grace is an important truth. But sometimes believers say, well, it's got to be all of one or the other because it doesn't make sense to me. How can you have these two together? How can there be real responsibility and yet complete sovereignty? Scripture doesn't resolve that. Only in the Lord. And so we must understand those, both those two are to operate. We're not to go one side or the other. So in this call here, Paul's saying, Stand firm, thus in the Lord. He's calling the Philippians to action. He's calling them to response, but he says it's in the Lord. And this qualifier covers so much. That your ability to stand is not just because you've chosen, it's because the Lord has chosen you. The Lord has been gracious in your life. He is at work in your life. He has caused you to be born again in Christ. He has put out his grace on you. He's at work. And ultimately, Christ has gone and died for your sins and rose again. And he, in a sense, is standing before the throne of God, interceding for you. That you might endure to the end. And he's offered his life, his blood for that. His blood pleads for you. And it will not fail. So your standing comes because he stands already. He stands, and therefore we can stand. That's an important truth to remember. 19th century pastor F.B. Meyer wrote a story about two Germans who wanted to climb the Matterhorn. These two German men hired three guides, and, and they roped themselves together. And the way it went was a guide, and then uh, the, the guy trying to climb, the rookie, then another guide, and then another, the traveler, and then a guide. So they were... Were three guides, two travelers in between them. And they climbed up the mountain and it was icy. And the last man in in the train, they were all tied together, lost his footing. And he was held up by the other four. But then he slipped and the next guy fell. Each each of them slipped. They didn't have a good toehold. They slipped, they fell down. And the only man to stand firm was the guy at the very top. And he had dug his pickaxe deep into the ice. And he had a firm grip. And though all the others fell, the other four fell, he remained. And they were saved. They were rescued because of that. And F.B. Meyer concluded the story saying, I am like one of those men who slipped. But thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because He stands... I will never perish. Christ is that guide who stands firm forever. And because we're tied to Him, we stand as well. That's our hope. That's where we anchor ourselves. But we're called to practice and live that out. We're called by Paul to stand firm thusly in the Lord. And he's been talking about how to stand firm in this this section of his letter. He says, stand firm thusly. What is the thusly or thus? in the Lord. Is thusly a word? I guess if if it was my Bible, it would say thusly. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. And what's the thus he's speaking about? Well, he's most likely referring to what he's been saying right before, and I think referring to the whole letter. This letter to the Philippians is about how to stand firm in the Lord. It's about how to do it. And we need to listen to this. We need to understand just how important it is for us to stand firm in the Lord. And how important it is for our friends whom we love to stand firm in the Lord. If we love people, if the love of Christ fills our heart, we want to know how to help one another stand firm in the Lord. We want to know ourselves how to stand firm in the Lord. Paul's saying, stand firm thus in the Lord. So we want to pay attention. And our desire in going through the book of Philippians is that you all, that we all would learn how to stand firm in the Lord so what does he say? Well, in the immediate context here, what you heard from Sean the other week, and before that I think it was me, and, uh, it, going through these sections of, of Scripture, chapter 3, verses 12 and on, uh, Paul has given them the mindset to stand firm in the Lord. He's talked about imitating him and his mindset. And if we look at what he's calling us to, he's calling us to have this heavenly, this identity of our heavenly citizenship. To see that we are citizens of heaven. That we are called to this life of glorying in Christ. We're to look forward to our eternal reward. We're to base our life, going back a little earlier, on the righteousness of Christ. We are to find that all other things are rubbish compared to knowing Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Him. To ground ourselves in that. And to want to become like Him. We're to reject an identity that finds its life in the things of this world, particularly the broken things of this world, the appetites of this world. He talks about their end is destruction, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their mindset on earthly things. Paul says, Reject that approach to life. Don't imitate that, and I'm sure Sean did a great job. I didn't get a chance to listen to it yet, and talking about that. We're to reject that wrong example. We're to not glory in the things of this world. We're not to let our appetites rule us. But we're to find our citizenship in heaven and ground ourselves in Christ and, and, and live in His righteousness and see that He is of surpassing worth. We stand firm thus in the Lord. And we can dig deep into Philippians as well and see other things. This is a book about living centered on the good news of Christ. So Paul's saying, stand firm thus in the Lord. Have Christ as your center. Have His person and work, His death and His resurrection at the core of your life. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Guys, we are a gospel-centered church. And not because it's a cool and in phrase among Christian churches. We don't care what it's called, what the phrase is, but the concept we are committed to because Scripture is committed to it. And the concept we're committed to because it has everything to do with you and us standing firm in the Lord. There's no other way to stand firm in the Lord but without the gospel, the good news of Christ at the very center. And this wonderful letter teaches us that. It teaches us to lock arms together as well. Earlier on in chapter 1, he talks about standing firm side by side. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. For the sake of the gospel, this is a picture that we stand firm in the Lord by locking arms together in the gospel and on gospel mission together, going forward in the gospel. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Paul teaches us this here, and really this whole series is about standing firm thus in the Lord. I think of a picture. Uh, my family, we, we love to go to the White Mountains, and we love to go swimming in the Saco. Anyone ever gone swimming in the Saco River? It's beautiful and cold, right? Uh, There's this one spot we love to go to, though, there's there's this beach at the bend in the river, and at some times the river can really be strong there, and in order to get to the beach, you got to cross the river. Now, you can swim across. If you don't want to swim across it, you have to walk across. But if you know the Saco and you know a lot of the mountain streams, it's pretty difficult to cross the river, isn't it? When you get out in the water, you got the stream flowing against you that can take you off your feet just by itself. And not only that, but you're trying to cross on these rocks that are slippery. Have you ever tried to do that? Just cross a mountain stream in that situation? It's, It's difficult just to stand there and not be taken off your feet. And I think that picture of the Saco is like a picture of life. In life, we are making our way across the Saco River and just the streams that are flowing against us of our circumstances, of the challenges of our own soul, would take us off our feet, left to ourselves. And then we're trying to find some place to put our feet, and it's just all slippery rock. And at any moment, we can slip on that rock and be taken off our feet by that stream. That's life. That's our experience. But Paul says here, stand firm thus in the Lord. Paul has given us an ability to stand in that stream. He's given us first a solid rock that is flat and stable and not slippery. It's very firm and you can stand on that rock. That rock is Christ, the good news of Christ. It isn't a slippery rock. It's the only rock that you can stand on. And not only has he given us that rock, but he said, guys, when you're in that stream, you've got to lock arms together. Lock arms together as you all stand on that rock and those streams of life will not knock you down. And then also he gives us these staffs, these these great staffs of gospel truth to hold and to stabilize ourselves, to stand on. Stand firm thus in the Lord, Paul says. In these ways, this book gives us this instruction to stand firm so that we can stand firm in the Lord. So that on that final day, we can look back and say, wow, I was able to stand and here I am. And not only am I here, but my friends are here. My other brothers and sisters are here because together we learned how to stand, how to stand on that rock, how to lock arms, how to hold on to those stabs of gospel truth how to lean on the truth that that God has promised actually for the believer that he will complete the work, that we will stand, that we will get to the other side. That's what Paul's after here. How about you? Is it what you're after? Are you standing firm thus in the Lord? Do you understand what it means to, to have the gospel as that rock that's not slippery? Do you understand how the gospel works in life? the truth of your forgiveness and your righteousness and all the blessings that flow from the gospel are yours do you understand that are you seeking to grow in that understanding do you belong to a church this church or another church do you belong to a church are you in a place where you can be grounded in the truth of the gospel so belonging not just to any church that calls itself a church, but a church that understands that the ground is the gospel, that that only rock to stand on is the good news of Christ. Do you belong to a church like that? Are you learning about the gospel in that church? That is our commitment here. I know there's many other churches as well. But more than that, are you seeking to build relationships with others? Are you, for us, small groups is a key way to do that. Are you in a small group here at King of Grace Church? Have you been attending a while? and yet have not made the step to be in a small group. I would just say that your ability to stand comes from being in a small group, walking arms, standing on the gospel together, helping one another, reminding one another. Part of what our small groups are about are reminding one another about the truth of the gospel, confessing our sins, our struggles, praying for one another, going to scripture, understanding the truths and the power of God in the, in the word of God walking alongside each other in the ups and downs of life you cannot do it on your own please do not try to cross the Saco river on your own are you learning about these things are you learning to reject your identity apart from Christ in the world and but instead to ground yourself in Christ do you know that your eternal life is at stake in these things and the eternal lives of those around you as well he who endures to the end will be saved. If you are truly saved, you will endure. You are preserved through the means of grace of standing firm thus in the Lord. If the band could come up as we close. King of grace, church, my beloved friends, my brothers and sisters whom I enjoy and long for when I'm not with you you are my joy and crown as one of your pastors listen to Philippians 4:1. listen to the word of God listen to these things and stand firm thus in the Lord this is Paul's heart cry this is his call this is the call of God Himself. This is to be our heart cry one for another and our call one to another. We are to love one another and want the best. And the best is to stand firm in Christ. Love wants others to stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this love you put in our hearts. Thank you for Paul's love and the example that he is and his love for the Philippians and his call. And, Lord, I I can't wait to meet these people and just to ask them, how did this operate? How did hearing that verse operate in your life? How did it help preserve you? What difference did it make in your life? And just to hear those stories. And, Lord, those stories will be innumerable in heaven. Thank you, Lord for this truth, and I pray you would change our lives. You would fill our hearts with love one for another, and we would want the very best for one another. We would want to see others stand firm in you day to day and on that final day that we would so build our church and so build our relationships and so reach out to the lost that we would have a crown and great joy on that final day as we are all there together with great fruitfulness and great joy in your presence forever. Grant us this, O God, according to your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us in these ways for the sake of your glory and our good we pray. Mm. Amen. Amen. Mm, Let's all stand.